Welcome back to the Kaparu Cast. This is South Cox, and I I have the pleasure of inviting Aaron and Frank onto the cast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for inviting us. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I figured I'd let you guys in. You're beating on the door there before I cleaned out your inventory. <laughs> well, it's cold outside. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today, South? Um, well, one of the things, I don't know if we want to, uh, ultimately we're going to talk about, um, doing some arrow testing, um, you know, as far as like the downrange ballistics of how, uh, you know, different fletching configurations will slow your arrow and, and, uh, um, also kind of monitoring or, or gauging arrow noise with some decibel meters, but, um, maybe we want to talk about some other stuff before we get, dive into, into that. Yeah, we. I'm. Uh, I'm open for whatever. I. Uh, it's funny the uh, those new veins I got. Um, yeah, I want to hear something about those. I'm really curious. Yeah, well, I just um, paranoid, you know, with the weather. You know, Colorado. I don't really have to worry about rain, and so with some pretty wet weather hunts, specifically that goat hunt, I was trying to figure out. You know, I I got duck feathers, and then I had uh, natural turkey feathers, and all of them get wet eventually. And I had multiple people in Alaska just don't even try it. Just shoot an elevated rest with veins. And I didn't want to really shoot an elevated rest. So I got a hold of Greg pool and he's like, man, I, th- I think we can do it. And so tried several kind of different mixtures, I guess. And then uh, it's working now. I got it right. I, they sent me three, four and five inch and I just matched it up five inch to five inch. So I got three, five inch veins and they hit the same, as well as I can shoot out to 40 with broadheads. And so I'm pretty excited. And it's not, you know, I was trying to explain to people because they're like, are they durable? It's like, well, no, they're not that durable in the sense they will wrinkle. They still hit in the same spot. But for a guy who wants to just um, have three or four uh, in the quiver or a couple in the quiver or go on a hunt and hit in the same spot and not have to stress over it, it's 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 been a game changer for me because last night at 40, uh, you know, in that little triangle at 40, um, I'm hitting with broadheads right around with my field tips, feathered, uh, you know, feather fletched as well as veins, bear shafts, everything's right there. And I can't ask for more than that. So what, what is, how are they different from a standard fletching that makes them more like a feather or perform like a feather? Just soft, way soft. Okay. So it's, it's the compound that they're. And that's what took so long. They, the mixtures, like okay. they made several mixtures to get it right. And. They are like so soft. You're like, how the hell do these? St-? I would think at 240, 230, they'd probably flatten out pretty good. Uh, but at slower speeds, they they do fine. And I mean, like, I don't know if if you have time. There's three videos I posted. They fly amazing. I did slow mo videos at oh, I think the farthest shot maybe was 45 or 50. Um, but you can see them. I mean, they don't no bounce, no nothing crazy. So, I'm I'm excited just because I don't have to stress over it. I'm not going to have you know all my arrows fleshed with veins. I don't think, but have a dozen you know right. ready to go. Uh, and I at forty they hit the same you know which I thought they might hit a little bit higher because it was feathers. But I I would think that big veins probably flapping a little too and mm-hmm. probably slowing down um you know a little bit compared to a stiffer vein that doesn't have maybe as much drag um but that's kind of you know that's Do they how you're weigh testing. the same hell no so a, Are they a lighter st- yeah standard five inch veins fourteen fifteen grains uh-huh. they're like 
uh, 4.2. Oh, <laughs> shit. Yeah. Yeah. They're feathers, basically. Yeah. I mean, I was like, when you know, screwing around with this because I'm a tinkerer anyway, and I'm like, huh. So we put them on, and then um, Amy and I went to, to Golden with Fred, and I was like, we'll see. You know, I'm, I'm not, not too high of hopes, and you, know, you always wonder, like, okay, maybe I'm, like, a corrective bow arming. Am I making this mm-hmm. happen, you know? And psh, I don't know. I shot for f- six days total since I've gotten them, and uh, I haven't found anything negative yet. So, so they're kind of more like uh, a, flat, a flex fletch compound as far as being softer, but maybe even softer than the flex fletch. Oh, w- way softer. So I had a few guys comment. You always get some chucklehead online of, oh, we've been doing that for years. Well, if, if you With have. With what? <laughs> yeah. If, if people have, how accurate are they for one? Like, okay, we've been doing it for years. Well, can you hit a stop sign at 40 yards? Like, do you, is it that accurate or is it just close enough? And then you know, kind of the next thing, you know, for me is, is like, okay, I've tried, there's a soft Marco vein and Marcos are super old mm-hmm. that I tried and it would hit close, but I'd get some, some bounce. Right. And then those old AAE Plasta Fletches, which you can't even find anymore. And AAE makes these, those are probably twice as stiff as what these are. They're so flexible. It's almost like, that's a vein. I mean, literally it's that flexible. So huh. I and I shoot off the shelf and I don't have much of a gap between my strike plate and um you know my shelf plate or whatever so they just fold up but over time they're going to wrinkle you know but I mean truly like if you go on a super wet weather hunt and you just grab a few of them you're not you don't have anything to worry about so are they a parabolic or a shield cut these are a parabolic and you know they're going to make probably whatever but I'll probably make a they'll probably make them out of parabolic just cuz from my testing, shield cut and parabolic, especially in these, the shield cut was louder compared mm-hmm. to the parabolic, but I'm sure they would do, I mean, I'd hate to speak for them. They can cut whatever they want. You know, they make shield and parabolic veins. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know, but I was, I was excited. I was happy. Does that, so when you add weight to the back of your arrow, that stiffens your arrow, right? Mm-hmm. That amount of weight different. What are you just three fletch or four fletch? So I got three fives, but they weigh so little, it's almost the same as my veins or my feathers. It's not significant enough to change the dynamics. No, not the way that I shoot. I mean, not, I mean, I shoot good enough to hit a plate at 40 most of the time. I I don't know what you think about that, but some of the, especially customer service calls from day six, where a guy will say, you know, I'm not plus or minus one grain, which, you know, what, whatever, like it. With a shooting machine, 10 yeah. grains off at 80 yards, you can't see a difference um, that I've ever seen with a shooting machine. And I don't know what your opinion is of that, but. Well, my, I mean, um, I'm, you know, shooting a stick bow now. There's, I introduce so many variables myself into into the shooting that um, I, I'm not that concerned. You know, I mean, I try to stack the deck as much as I can in my favor um, as far as you know, the straightest shafts and getting my arrows, you know, as close as I can and weight, but I'm, I'm not sweating small details because I know what I'm doing just, you know, in my release and, and all that is, is going to affect the shot way more than, um, than being off a, you know, grain or two arrow to arrow. Yeah. Well, I made a 
joke, but I was being serious to a guy. He said, I'm a little weak spine. Should I change? And I'm like, well, you're probably going to collapse when an animal's in front of you anyway, and it'll fly perfect. And he was like, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, yeah, I wasn't joking. I'm, uh-huh. I'm serious. Like that's, I know a lot of guys that do that yeah. shoot slightly under spine because they'll probably won't hit full draw or collapse a little. With a compound, I like to go a little bit stiffer spine. But with a stick bow, there is a good argument to run a little weak because sure. I don't give a shit who you are. or what I mean, mental control, whatever. Most guys with an animal in front of them, I don't hit the clicker every time. I just don't. I mean, I, I do sometimes. And then there's other times I don't give a shit if I'm hit. I know mentally, like, I've pulled enough. I'm going to shoot this right. thing. So Doesn't yeah. it seem like you'd have the adrenaline going so much that you would overdraw? Does that, that not was, happen? That was how I put a clicker on the beginning. I my my arrow was an inch and a half longer, and I pulled to my broadhead, <laughs> and I called Danny. I'm like, dude, we need to do something about this because I don't I don't have a collapse problem. I have an overdraw problem, especially farther distances where you you said you kind of used to pull through and shoot on the collapse, right. which a lot of guys do. Where me, which is just as bad, I would keep pulling i mean they both have a fucking outcome right Right. so there's i mean people laugh but there's so much well what you do is the smartest thing just get really close because you could literally shoot well and frank you've seen it ask a guy what he's well i'm sure you've seen it too hey well how far do you think that was on a 3d 34 it's 42 and he's pinwheel 12 Uh that happens with animals shit your pants drop your bow arm you thought it was 40 it was 30 and you pinwheel it well, with a stick bow, that's, in my opinion, compounded to where sometimes doing something bad might help you. Um, right. it, it has me a few times. Well, I, I think if you were to go back to, you know, 20, 25 years ago when compounds didn't have that hard back wall and you're shooting round wheels and, you know, you had an inch long valley and, uh, you know, that's a lot more like what we're dealing with with a stick bow. Um you know, I, I wish, so there's about a 10 year span. I, I, when I got back into it, I started that first year, I shot a clicker and then I got tired of getting my string tangled up, the, the clicker string tangled up and brush and what have you. So I've yanked it off. And so I shot for about 10 years without, and I would love to know, you know, every animal I either shot or shot at, what draw length was it each time? <laughs> Cause I guarantee you that it was different each time. Oh, well, and with the compound, you have draw stops, right? You just, and guys have asked me about, uh, who was I talking? Oh, Al Kidner. I was talking to him yesterday and he was like, it doesn't seem like guys with a compound get target panic. And I'm like, oh no, No. that's not (laughs) more people probably are as many, but it's easier to hide because you have the draw stops and you, you know, if you're not looking at a guy's finger, you may not know He's hammering the trigger with a stick bow. It's more prevalent. Um, one, your hand, you can watch it do crazy stuff, but you can short draw. Um, you can't short draw a compound because you got right. pay, you got the, you know the draw stops. But who knows how many animals when you go through that you killed out of luck? I mean, compound or right? <laughs> yeah, there's been more than a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, though for sure. And I, I mean, I've got a highlight misreel that uh, <laughs> I think would rival anybody's. Uh, you, yeah, you definitely uh, not you in general, but everyone. It's one of the things I was talked about. You know, guys need to. You're gonna have to stick with it if you pick up. I mean. 
get hate mail from guys about calling it the struggle stick, which I understand, but you got to be prepared to stick with it. It may take... Well, I swear to God, my hunt this year was making fun of you on your first video. That was the hunting God fucking with me. Because um, I, I, would you miss that first year? Uh, I think five. Well, we tied then. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and I practiced more than any human I know, and I missed five. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. And that wasn't, that wasn't the first year. That was a one, you know, one nine day hunt. Or I mean, uh, that video. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One that mule deer. Day, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there was a, another hunt. <laughs> that I went on there in Nevada as well, you know, so that wasn't just, unfortunately wasn't five misses <laughs> in the season. <laughs> yeah. Well, how many did we come up? I missed five and I should have probably hit three. I think I was just there for the one miss. Yeah. But no, but didn't we talk? Well, you probably don't remember cause I talked too much, but, uh, I think I missed five and three were definite shots. I, I probably should have hit and two were ones I maybe, maybe not should have taken. Um, and, you know, when I say that, meaning, you know, you get caught in the moment or one's wheeling out and you're kind of already committed and you shoot or whatever, but I, shit happens. I mean, I practice, I do as much as I possibly can as well as you guys do, and you still, shit happens when you party naked. I mean, you cannot control certain things, especially adrenaline's pretty hard to control. And I remember watching your video thinking... I mean, well, on the side of the mountain, I'm thinking, man, I should have never made fun of South. Like, good Lord. This is, <laughs> but, you know, you look at it and, um, you know, kind of in, in retrospect, it seems super easy to think you're 26 yards or whatever. How did you miss? And then you're out there and you're like, Jesus, there's like 900 reasons I can miss right now. Like there's so much shit going on. 26 yards and in all of those misses would have been a long shot too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what all did you you had a knock break on one? Oh dude, yeah, there are so many so many errors or um, heartbreaks, you know. I mean the the first one was I was, you know, probably 15 feet, 12 to 15 feet directly above this buck and I was about to get a shot straight down on him in his bed and uh in the wind eddied and it just kind of died, you know, and sank and uh and he picked some something up and I don't know why this deer just didn't come unglued and run to the next, you know, next zip code, but he ended up jumping up out of his bed and he ran about 10 yards or maybe not even quite that far and stopped. And it just happened, of course, there was a big bush that was directly between he and I, but there was like a softball size hole through this bush that I could see his vitals. And I thought I could sneak one through there, but my fletching must have caught a uh, you know you know the outer edge of that softball there, and it ticked it and just deflected it down right between his legs. So that was the first the first miss, and uh, I'm trying to remember all of them. Maybe probably tried get, to block it out. Yeah, I, I PTSD <laughs> start stuttering. Yeah, I had a number of deflected shots. You know where it was like one. I snuck up on this buck that um, my buddy ended up shooting, and it was almost – it was just shy of 190. Um, but this buck uh, was bedded down, and I could just see, you know, his rack. So I chucked a little rock over the top of him and got him to stand up. But unfortunately, when he stood up, the, the branches in front of me between he and I, I could only see, like, the top six or, you know, so inches of his back. And so I tried to – put an arrow over the top of that branch to drop into his vitals there. And of course, you know, I tried to get as close as I could and I ticked the top of that and sent that one into orbit. Um, and then I had the one that 
that uh, the knock broke on. So I was drawing my bow on this buck and it was, you know, just over 20 yards. And um, as I'm hitting anchor, I felt my, uh, I, I felt something move on my arrow, you know, shooting three under. So my, my fingers resting right up against the knock and I looked down and I have half a knock. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought about just shooting and hoping that it would stay on. But it was like, man, and I'll blow a limb and, you know, way back up in here. So I had to let that guy walk. And uh, that was uh, back when Gold Tip was having some problems with their, the I guess, their manufacturer, their knocks screwed up and left one of the ingredient out in the plastic or in their knocks. Yeah. So they had a bunch of brittle knocks that they had sent out. And I was a victim of one of those. Um and I know there was a, another one or two in there, but man, I'm not remembering them now. It's far enough back that I haven't watched that DVD in a while. So I get bored. I watch, I skip back and forth between that one and, and Fred Bear. But that's one thing you brought up about having a video camera behind me. Some of that shit, you know, you got to have, I don't know if I want people to see, you got to have some <laughs> balls because I, well, you didn't do anything too stupid. You said you stocked one empty bed. You had a lot of more downtime than I had this year. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have as many um, opportunities this year, but yeah, you got any crazy from? Because you shot that big, that three by three on the wall there. Wasn't that a shit? Didn't you shoot that on the tenth or eleventh day? Yeah, I think it was the ninth day. Yeah, but uh, first day, I um, I stocked up on a buck, and it was just starting to to lightning and, and rain, so I didn't have a whole lot of time. And I saw him feeding this avalanche shoot, and I was like, "Well, I'm gonna go and try to." cut him off and intersect well as soon as i started to do that he just walked out like 20 yards in front of me he was moving my way <laughs> and i was i drew back at that ham ski on there without the without the arrow guard yeah and i drew back and my arrow was off the off the launcher <laughs> so i'm like at an angle aiming down trying to use my finger to pop it back up on the launcher yeah and then uh i finally got it back on there and i i had my cam on my knee and i shot and it just shot right over its back Oh, Lord. So that was a, I talked to you about that. I was like, dude, I really need that arrow guard on there. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've had a guy, we were elk hunting and, uh, you know, on the 3D, I've used my mouse to my tongue, which uh -huh. is weird looking, hook it on. And he did that with an elk in front of him and had, must have had target panic and let her rip. Man, it about ripped the end of his tongue off. And oh I, you know, I'm a dickhead. Oh, I was laughing man. so hard. It not to get off subject, one of the funniest things I've ever seen was Mark Hershey. He used to work at No Limits, you know, when they had the string, oh, string yeah. stopper on the, the, the what do they call that thing? The little rubber deal at the bottom by the cam that the string would go yep. against on a Matthews. Well, he's fat, and he let the bow down, and it curled in his stomach, oh. uh, the string and the string stopper. So he had this gnarled up. It looked like a vagina. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it was some of the funniest shit I've ever seen. That's like the ultimate goat bite. <laughs> oh, Lord, yeah. Yeah, no, for yeah, for sure. I had one I missed uh, in Nevada. I think it was my first year hunting there in Nevada, so it was back in the mid-'90s. And man, the, the bucks that were in there during that time, I mean, it's that, that unit that I hunt out there is, is really gone downhill the last 20, 25 years. It's actually, it's gone, come back a little bit, but it's nowhere near what it used to be. But we used to see, you know, 170 class bucks regularly and we'd see, you know, bigger bucks back in there, um, every, every year, but in this particular stock, I was on a buck that was mainframe, um, probably solid 180, and then he had inlines on both sides. 
Um, so he was he had to have been north of 190, and I was way up on top of the this ridge, up on top of this um, kind of bald hill there, and the wind was just howling coming over the top. And I had gotten on these bucks a couple of times, and finally I, I was closing in on them. The wind was blowing right in my face, so I wasn't going to have to deal with like a crosswind or something. Um, and I want to say, I want to say that the laser rangefinders had just come out. Um, of course, we didn't have inclometers, but it was a level shot, and I had ranged it. I, if I remember correctly, it was fifty yards. I drew back on this buck, and I was shooting a bow doodle. So I was shooting a compound. And I didn't realize it, but the wind blew my arrow off the rest, so it was <laughs> laying between my rest and my riser. Was it the bow doodle that had the little prong to help hold it on the two prongs? Because they had these little right. flat fingers. I only ask because I have the same type of story, and it was up on the side prong and the first prong. It could have been. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been, yeah. It, it's not good either. <laughs> no. I, I miss this buck by at least 10 feet low and to the right. And I couldn't figure out, I mean, it, dude, this buck was giant, man. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was, it was, I was just sick. And this thing ran off, turns broadside at, you know, I don't know, 70 yards or something. And the wind's just blowing so hard after that first shot. It was like, there's no way, you know, he's going to be able to pull it, pull it together. But yeah, I, missing for me is not exclusive to the, the stick bow. That's for sure. I, I didn't miss as much with uh, the the compound, um, but you should, you know, when sometimes when I, when I missed that goat, it was, I mean, it was one of the first times where I had really no idea what to do. There was an updraft, uh-huh. you know, and it was funny because I shot and Bart's used to guys missing because he's an right. outfitter and he's yeah. like, just aim at it again. And I'm like, I'm calm. I'm like, no, no, I, <laughs> so uh-huh. hold on. And I, dial like nine yards off of it because I missed by so much and he's looking at me and I'm like I think there's an updraft or something and I shot and I, I missed again and I'm like huh I really have no idea what to do here because I you know because of that specific right. thing but I've missed from like I'm not a fan of a single pin hunting site and, mm-hmm. and if guys are that's great and I but I've I've missed from a single pin um you know animals coming in and yep. out I've missed from that I've missed three times from drawn Back in the day, like uh, Bowtech had a Mighty Might. I don't know if you're, it's like super short when short bows started to be cool. And you'd get so much string pinch, your shit would be skipping down the arrow <laughs> oh, right man. when you draw. Uh-huh. I'd had it one time like, bouncing like that. Uh, and then one another time I had the bright idea of, um, you know, this over the course of the last like 20 years, um, you know, drawing to the arrow rest pretty close. And yep. remember the old um, Golden Premieres, the, yep. the be all end all, two little prongs and you'd put teflon on them mm-hmm. and i drew so hard on a big bull and it popped my arrow off and <laughs> fucking fell and then i let down and it anyway a lot of things can happen and, and the more time you spend in the field you know i remember you used to paint you know different parts of your bow yeah um and you probably still do stuff like that and i didn't realize at the time like trace them kind of where they sit on the bow Mm, no, he would he would paint cams yeah. and everything, get yeah. the shine off. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Well, and like you painted the GoPro, which makes sense. I mean, you would be amazed when you watch a guy stalk how much animals right. catch. And yep. so there's a, a lot of the Sitka clothing I like, and there's some of it that shines. Mm-hmm. And it just, I'll throw it in mud or whatever, that sheen sticks yep. out. It sticks out to an animal. And so there's certain 
clothing I don't like wearing because of that specific reason. There's certain times you don't want a glass because they'll catch the reflection off. And depending upon how the skittish the animal is, sometimes they don't really know what the hell's going on anyway. But there's a lot of shit that can happen um, that if you haven't been on multiple stocks, you're going to learn the hard way. Makes you wonder why so many people hate on face paint. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. That there's I get a, made fun of for that. Yeah, I I think people are missing the boat when they you, you know, when they. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of instances. Ideally, you're it's not going to matter because, like, particularly when you're stalking a mule deer, the whole idea is to circle around. You know, at least this is my tactic: circle around, come in from above and behind them. And ideally, the deer's never going to know you're in the area, and you're going to shoot them, and and uh, it's not going to be an issue. But I've had, I'm convinced that between that shaggy hat that I wear and face camo, that it has bought me enough time on multiple occasions, um, just because the deer can't identify what I am, that it's gotten me a shot opportunity and I filled tags as a result of it uh, versus, you know, going in with no camo on your hands or, you know, on your face and um, going in without anything to break up your, your profile. Yeah, I get, um, well, I don't respond to most of them now, but um, unless it's a good quality question, but you spent, you know, at this point, you know, how many thousands of dollars on camoing your body when the number one most identifiable piece of your body is your face. Right. And then there it is. And where you really see it's a tree stand, you you know, you see a guy and you can, first thing you pick out is mm-hmm. their face or on a stock, you can usually pick out the guy's face. So... I'm diligent about my hands and my face, and I don't get. I can understand why people. You get Chris Brackett, that retard, point, you know, painting. I don't even know what that design is on his face. Uh, he painted like an antlers, antlers, right? Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, right. I just smear a bunch to get on and get the sheen off for the shine. But it is. I think it's extremely important. And again, most of the time, you're right. I could have a chew in and a sleeveless t-shirt, but when they bound out, stop, and look back at you. That's when it comes real right. important um, that they don't know that you're there. Yeah, I don't put the time in that the full moon production guys did with, you know, painting all the badass predator <laughs> camo on their faces and stuff. But. I remember how many comments there were about that. Like, why the hell are you painting your face to take a 90-yard shot, you know? Uh-huh. But they did do – I remember watching those videos. That was in 2001. Was that? Yeah, I think it was around that time, yeah. They were ahead of their time, oh. you know, really – from a production, video quality, and content standpoint, I really enjoyed their films. Frank, I've told you about it before. When it first came out, when I say told you about it, like when it came out and we watched it, I mean, they had uh, – and, and Anthony Dixon, I don't know him that well. You know him yeah. a lot better than I do. But he was kind of a guy like a um, what I would consider from the outside looking in a, a snowboarder, mountain climber turned archer. Mm-hmm. I don't, would you – Yeah, I'd agree. So visors, right, <laughs> full-on uh, Oakley's or Smith glasses and Predator camo, which at that time, in my opinion, if Predator ever made high-quality clothing, would probably crush the industry because I'm Dude, a big it, their, fan of Their pattern is still—I love their pattern, but I, I don't know how they've been able to survive as long as they have and, and not make, you know, um, really good technical clothing. Yeah. Whitetail hunters, I guess. I mean, guys yeah. that don't need it, but they were full on Badlands packs, and they would stop and they'd be dipping bushes in the camo and putting. It on. Of course, <laughs> they, the first video I watched, I don't think they hit one in the lungs. Right? They shot one in the wiener. They hit a couple yeah. spines, and 
launching arrows, yeah. launch. And I'm watching this thinking, man, this shit is not going to fly. But it seemed like it gave a leg for some guys to stand on to be like, wow, this is cool. And I remember thinking, I can't believe, you know, this is people are buying on this, even though I thought it was cool as shit. I yeah. Mean, Th- yeah. That was back in the day when, you know, a 50 yard shot was a long shot and any talking about shooting beyond that was taboo. And they're video and practicing it like a hundred, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they had a, they shot Sherlock lethal weapons. I think is what that site was yeah. called. Site was awesome. The pin sucked. I mean, I, I'd say it, but I, I wouldn't trust that site in a, brushy area the, little, <laughs> the whole site was a little fragile for hunting purposes basically a target site that they used you know in the field yeah but that those guys sold more badlands packs than probably you know anyone at that time um you know from what i remember watching that was one of the reasons i was i had a badlands 4500 yep. and i was going to sell it and run an arcteryx bora and i watched that and i'm like well these guys are Wearing it, it's got to be cool. And of course, later on, I ripped a fucking belt in half and my frame <laughs> broke. But I, I mean, at that time, that twenty two hundred was another one that, that yep. they they rolled with. Um, and I don't know what Dixon's doing now. Exactly, you might know more. No, I haven't, I haven't been in touch with them in a few years. Um, I don't know if he's still in the doing things in the industry or not. But I mean, he's a was a visionary guy. You know, ahead of probably too far ahead of his time in a lot of lot of uh, aspects there. But, um, yeah, he, he actually was a professional skier before he came into the hunting industry. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, the second one they did was a little yeah. bit much for me. Like, they're meeting in this pool hall right. about making – I'm like, can, and then they had a helicopter. They It was a little weird. Yeah. But, yeah, they they shot some – they took some far, far shots. And, and again, like, at that time was – I don't want to say revolutionary because a lot of people hated it, but it's certainly, you're right, it was far ahead of its time well, when it came out. you never seen him? I've seen him, yeah. yeah. I watched him at Isaac's house. We watched him when I was there. What, what did Isaac say about him? He liked it too. I don't yeah. know. He said it was a classic. <laughs> <laughs> had you ever seen him before? No, I haven't. Just what you had told me about it. Yeah, that's pretty funny because was, that was when ba- uh, Isaac was running the pro staff for, for Badlands. Badlands. Yeah, 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 yeah at that, that time. That dude's the character, man, Isaac. Oh yeah, I, the, the, I mean, I'd known him through the industry, but I never really had any in-depth conversations with him. And I stopped by the uh, Badlands office one day. I can't remember what I was doing in Salt Lake, but I swung by there. And I mean, I, I had a hard time sitting in my seat. I was laughing so hard sitting in his office. <laughs> Dude's a character. He's funny, Frank. You well, Frank. You went stayed at his house and hunted with him. He yeah. well, he runs Easton's stuff and Beeman now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he's pretty damn funny. His kid is freaking hilarious. He's like a spitting image of him. So, yeah, they're they're both awesome to hunt with, and yeah, they've been very hospitable to me. So, good dude, good dude. Yeah. So, what do you got? Draws are are they're open for Colorado right now, right? Yeah, I have not put in. I have not put in, but I think I'm going to do the same thing as last year, and Aaron will do the same. But yeah, we've got a turkey hunt coming up here in Colorado, so counting down the days for that i haven't been shooting as much as i i had in the past just been hunting coyotes a, a ton this year so um i need to get back on the wagon here and start shooting my bow more but yeah we shot at the uh at the highlands ranch um 3d range the other day and i was still i was still pretty decent so 
I'll take it. But there's a shoot coming up uh, April 27th, right? The the memorial shoot. There. Yeah, April 27th. We're gonna have a, a memorial shoot for Cody um, Mooney, a good friend of ours that passed away from a complications from a surgery from a brain tumor, and that'll be an American Bowman. So we'll have tons and tons of, of prizes as far as giveaways, raffles. Um, prizes for the winning winning shooters all kinds of stuff so yeah, if you can make it out definitely come out yeah i'm definitely gonna gonna give it a, a good run there i got a seminar i'm doing or actually a few seminars i'm doing at pope and young Jeez, if that if <laughs> if that's still gonna happen man uh, they're kind of floating away over there in nebraska yeah it's crazy that the the I know snow and then it melted yeah and like the that's whole, what it's from yeah so whole state of nebraska's Underwater. Like underwater, it's crazy. Yeah, I got to call that hotel and make sure they're still in business. Because I, man, I'll tell you, preparing for seminars is so much stinking work. Going through pulling pictures and then getting, you know, I'm not a computer genius, so laying them all out on PowerPoint and and uh, I've been watching YouTube. Feel like a millennium now, a millennial watching <laughs> YouTube how-to videos. And <laughs> but uh, I got to. I think it's going to be a pretty good seminar. I'm pretty excited about it, doing one on mule deer hunting there. So hopefully there'll be guys that can make it out there to, to uh, Omaha for the Pope and Young Convention and, and uh, get a chance to sit in on it. When is that? Uh, it is April 10th through the 13th. Oh, that'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah. When are we doing the... Turkey? Uh, no, no. When are we doing the... It's 27th, right? Cody's shoot is yeah. the 27th. Yeah, yeah, April 27th. So, and it's a good, you've shot it. I mean, that course yeah. is pretty Oh, it's cool, a blast. So. Yeah, it's a great, great one. Yeah, no, it'll be good. And I think, um, like Frank said, we've been, man, everybody's been super generous with, with, uh, give prizes and raffle prizes and everything else. So it'll be cool. There's a couple fitness events going on, but we'll just have a little bit healthier people being a little bit healthier, short for their weight people that attend our event. <laughs> <laughs> no, the guys yeah. that don't want to go drag a sled. You'll have options, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, how's that going to be set up up there? Is it going to be porta potties, food trucks, something like that? Or is it going to be pack your own lunch? Because, I mean, it takes a while to shoot that course. And yeah. You're, and you're a long ways from it. It's not like you can run down the corner store and get something to eat. So as far as people being prepared coming to it. I think, well, we're going to finalize everything on Wednesday, but there'll be porta potties there. And then uh, the guys at American Bowman just said they'll handle the concession. So okay. they'll do all the snacks and food. And I always bring my own uh, kind of food anyway, just because I eat too damn much. And then obviously National Forest isn't far away. If people want to camp up there, um, there's lots of different places to camp within 20 miles or so of the the tournament, but it'll be, I think we're thinking $50 for, um, adults, 20 for youth. Um, and then you get a, obviously raffle ticket for fairly like Davis tent awning donated a, a wall tent. If you can believe wow. that. And then we're going to do, we'll have eight mans and packs, uh, teepees, a sawtooth. We're going to donate quite a bit as well. And then I'd say we probably have, I mean, I, at least 20 other good donors Lord. of Pile a gear. wide range of different kinds of stuff. So yeah, it'll be it'll be good. So and then you know we're trying to we're probably going to do like we'll have a long distance shot where there's going to be a pretty significant prize where you uh, you know pay whatever five bucks for three arrows and all of it really is just to generate a shitload yeah. of money for Emma Cody's wife and their family. They have four kids and one on the way. So uh, yeah, uh, the yeah. More, yeah, more money we can you know generate for them the the better. And he was just. You know, it's he's just a super good guy, um, kind of guy you want to, you know, marry your daughter. So why shitty things happen like that? 
I have no idea, but try to make the best of it and help their family out as much as we possibly can. Good deal. Well, I'm sure that parking lot will be stuffed to capacity. Well, we're going to, we got to have pre-registration because of that. So, you know, the, they can only fit 80, 150 people, 80 vehicles there, and that's uh-huh. going to be tight. So it'll be a pre-registration just for the simple fact of total numbers. They can only handle so many shooters. So what if they've and you guys talked about um, an alternate place to park and then shuttling people up? We talked about that. That's kind of what we're going to handle uh, this Wednesday, Thursday, okay. Friday. But I think that includes in the 150, the only course can only accept okay. 150 people. So gotcha. they may do some carpooling anyway, just because. I'd say 80 vehicles is a bit steep for that yeah. parking area too. So I don't. There may be 80, 80 that get in there, but they ain't getting back out. Not, right. not unless with some coordination. So, uh, but no, it'll be it'll be cool, and I'm glad. You know, I'm glad we can be a part of it and and help out. But um, the, on a brighter side of things, just for the amount of people. Uh, sending in tons and tons of questions since all three of us are here and I'm kind of joining in late on the mule deer stuff with the addiction because I've been an elk guy but in general for both of you we'll just start we'll kind of go around you and then Frank and then me what would you say the number one key to your success is on a on an animal and the number one thing which is probably the same thing doing it right or wrong but the the, the number one key to success and the number one thing that screws you up more often in like the history when you're going in on an animal? Well, I think probably the the thing that screws me up is getting tunnel vision mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, just focus too much on, on that uh, one animal and not looking around enough. Um, and this will happen more like if I glass a deer up in his bed and he, you know, say I'm basin hopping, you know, running a ridge and going from one base to the next and I glass up a deer and he's already in his bed and and then I've either not taken the time to, you know, look diligently enough around and find any other possible spoilers there that are in the um, vicinity um, and, and then versus, you know, I'm sitting glass in a basin at prime time, light, you know, sun comes up and I'm more aware of every deer that's in that basin because they're all up feeding. Um, so that's usually not the problem. It's more when I'm, you know, running a ridge and then I um, find a buck that's already bedded and, and just miss, you know, a deer that's with that one bedded, you know, 10, 20, 30 yards off the side or something. I'm coming in on him and then that deer, you know, picks me off as I'm as I'm moving in. Um, so that's, I'd say that's what screws me up the most. And then as far as, um, the thing that makes me successful, I think is identifying, um, and it's hard to really even be able to say, you know, as far as, as giving advice as to when, when is the right time to stalk and when the right time to sit back. And it's, you know, as much of a feeling, um, that is difficult to articulate, um, in its, you know, circumstance to circumstance, um, versus the time, you know, when to go. So when to sit back and when to go, but, um, being able to kind of after, you know, 25 years or so of chasing mule deer, actually probably closer to 30, um, you know, just knowing, or it's not necessarily even knowing, but just having that feeling of, of when to go and when to, when to stay back and wait until you have a, you know, a better chance. Um, and kind of going along with that one, something I can, identifying your stalking route and using 
uh, very small changes in topography to be able to sneak in on a buck where like you might look at a, a deer's position and go, there's no way, you know, there's no way you can get on that deer. And then you sit there and you study, you know, the, the terrain above the deer. Cause I, I like to approach from, um, from above, you know, probably 98% of the time I'm coming in from above. Um, and you just study that, uh, the terrain and a lot of, it looks two dimensional as you're staring, you know, across a basin. But if you are able to sit there and, and you know, kind of bring out that three dimensional aspect of it and then figure out, okay, you know, if I get to that point there, there's a, a little rise right there. And that little rise right there should give me you know, the opportunity to hide behind that and come down and, and just being able to identify slight um, changes and bulges in topography, I think, is a, is a big thing. Because there's been a lot of times when I've looked at a stalking scenario and initially thought there's no way and then ended up being able to actually get down within range and, and uh, had enough cover to close the deal. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Frank? I think the biggest thing that screws me up just in general not just with mule deer is um once i have a plan together second guessing my plan while i'm like mid mid stocks <laughs> yeah. and it's always good to be able to adapt your 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 plans and stuff like that but once you've committed and then you start second guessing yourself i think that kind of gets you in your own head and it kind of can screw things up and then you can kind of then you forget the little things like you could get tunnel vision on your stock and you're not you're not keeping your your awareness up and stuff like that so i think that's screwed me up more than anything um is just kind of second guessing myself once i've committed to a a certain a certain stock i guess so that would be that and what was the other question same thing in reverse basically what do you think's helped you pull it off the most I think, uh, well, I don't think I've ever talked about this before, but um, one thing I like to do is is uh, just your attitude. One, I, I like to watch South's videos before I go like on a mule deer hunt because, <laughs> and this is nothing against stick bow shooters or anything like that, but it's like he can get within five feet of a deer and kill it. I should be able to get close enough with a compound to, to kill it. So having the persistence and, and knowing that it's definitely possible and it can happen at any time and any day. And if there's guys that are going up and freaking damn near stabbing a deer with a, a knife um, getting that close and I can I can get close enough to kill him with a compound so just having that attitude and the positivity and the persistence you know let me jump in Aaron real quick because I, I wanted to bring this up earlier and I didn't um, kind of passed on that the whole struggle stick thing to me uh, is kind of amusing I mean I don't usually jump in in the middle of social media arguments or you know people pissing on one thing or another I just kind of sit back and observe and, and chuckle to myself or whatever. But I think, um, cause there's a lot of, I guess, trad guys that are up in arms about it being called a struggle stick and, and they view it as a negative connotation. Whereas I look at it as it as a, like a, where is a badge of honor, you know, because it isn't easy and it is a struggle. And if you, you know, if you watch that video, the, the stalkers in the backcountry, that first hunt that I went on, uh, or that I show and um, 
you know, where I had missed, you know, whatever, four or five shots. And, and there's that last stock before I was successful. And I had blown that shot on that giant buck that, you know, which I almost cried yeah. before you. <laughs> <laughs> and I come back and I'm clearly, I mean, if you look at like the, the, the first stock that I um, had that shot deflected on, I come back up and I'm talking to the camera and kind of like, oh, well, you know, I missed that one, deflected the shot and let's go find another one. I'm super positive attitude. And it's like, and then by the, the fourth or fifth shot, it's day eight and my hunt's getting down to the wire and I'm, I'm clearly deflated, uh, you know, and it's just like, I'm frustrated and it's like, man, what do you have to do to close the deal? But I kept going. I didn't pack it up and go home. And it's that perseverance um, that if you have that kind of attitude and that kind you're up to the challenge, you know, the shooting a stick bow is to me, looks like a, a continual test of, uh, you know, basically of life. I mean, life's not going to be easy all the time. And for people to think that, you know, a, being called a struggle stick is, is a, akin to calling it an ineffective weapon. I think that's what they're, the way they're perceiving that when they, when they, uh, you know, hear struggle stick to me, it's like, no, it's, it's clearly an effective weapon, but it's what's going on between your ears that really makes the, the difference in the outcome. It's not the bow that is ineffective or effective. It's the person behind it. And if you, persevere and you put in the work and you put in the effort that I think it, I think it's a, you know, fantastic challenge and, and, uh, embracing the idea that it is a struggle and that it's not going to be easy. And, uh, and that as Americans, we have it pretty damn easy for the most part in our lives compared to, you know, the, the bulk of the rest of the world, um, I don't have an issue with, you know, this, this uh, idea of, or this, uh, this moniker, you know, calling it the, the struggle stick. It's just kind of amusing to me that people choose to look at it in a negative light versus a positive. Yeah. And I explained to several people like, guys, I, I get it. It's obviously lethal. You know, I've laid a pile of animals down and I just, if it wasn't a struggle, I wouldn't do it because I want the challenge. And I relay that to other people and, course there's the argument of like you said um it doesn't bring people into the sport and i'm thinking well and your name gets brought up i'm like between me and south and a few others i guarantee we've brought more people into the sport than anyone in the last 20 30 years by far and if i'm calling it a struggle stick and i'm getting hundreds of people converting over that's all in their mind not not the people converting over the people looking at it as negative where guys get on there and they'll hashtag struggle stick and guys get all pissed. And I'm like, I think they're wearing it as a badge of honors. I've mm -hmm. taken up the challenge. And, you know, I'm not going to bring up any names, but one of the funniest things that happened is, um, from what I, my knowledge, very few people have killed a, a free range spot and stock out dad. Yeah. And I got down there and found out firsthand why. Not a lot have done it with a compound, let alone with a stick bow. Yeah, well, I know why now. Like when I first went down there, I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. And you mentioned it, several uh -huh. others, and I got it done. And I just said, hey, whoever's done this, my hat's off to them. And then one of the main spokesmen for anti-struggle stick 
posts a photo of one he shot. Now, he <laughs> left out, he shot it over corn in a blind, which nothing against that. Sure. But it's like, hey. It's not quite the same. I also know because you're, all your friends don't really like you that much. Can they call me that you've wounded several deer? And then you talk about me at the end of the day about how stupid the struggle stick is. And it's like, hey, maybe we should just work on kind of getting along and promoting yeah. the, the, the bow for what it is. And to me, if I go up and uh, Frank says, man, I, I don't think we can get to the top of this mountain with 100 pounds on our back, but let's give it a go. You're going to struggle to get there, but it's a challenge and it's one we'll accept and then you do it. So uh, the struggle, you know, somebody said, you know, you don't call it the struggle. What There's analogies of different things, the struggle, whatever. The, anyway, for, for me and what I try to tell people is like, hey, if you take this up and you accomplish it and you, you succeed – it's going to be extremely rewarding, but you will struggle with it at times, a lot of times, more, sometimes more than others. And there's nothing to be ashamed of with that. Just stick with it. So it's a bunch of bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Just go shoot your bow and be happy and call it what you want. But you know more than anyone. Well, Broderick, too, when that popped up recently, the whole anti, he goes, I've shot over 500 animals with a stick bow. 90% of them were a struggle. You know, yeah. that's just how it is. And you change the wordage as much as you want but you gotta you gotta work at it there's not a lot of times when it comes together easy and the times that it does you know you got to be just thankful that you got an opportunity that was handed to you or that you didn't have to work quite as hard for um, not to say that i certainly there's been times when i've struggled with a compound and i've had to earn them uh, but you know the fact is when you the more that you were you're relying on on everything that you input into the bow versus the bow having you know some mechanical advantages that that help minimize that human error then uh, it's just going to be harder it's just what it comes down to and harder doesn't mean that it's not as good it just means that it's more challenging and i just i mean kind of hit scratch my head a little bit on that whole thing no nah, it, it is what it is i i for for me, one of the things, um, I mean, and I, I'm like, you know, fully whatever, I should say, like, pump your tires up, but it watching what you, not just what you kill, but the struggle you went through on that first video, because, I mean, when I saw that, I was like, first, like, like I said, but earlier, karma got me on the high country mule deer hunt, because I had, la I'm like, telling Amy, I'm like, how did he miss that many times? Well, here I am now. And I'm like, oh, I know how because I just did it, right? I mean, but you got to stick with it, yep. right? And um, if you don't stick with it, yeah, and you're, you know, you, whatever, you, what did, what did uh, Brian, uh, what he used to talk about, the Vagisil thing? I remember. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was so bad we couldn't. <laughs> uh, uh, Martin, Brian Martin, he, uh -huh. he's got some weird analogies. And, you know, he said in the packing list, he always needs to include Vagisil in there for guys because they'll want to come off the mountain so easy. And truly, if you, you know, are going to come off the mountain that easy, compound or traditional, you know, maybe you might want to take up a different sport, sport or, or hunt by the road, maybe a little bit closer. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But for me, I like to get an ass whooping, maybe not quite as bad as I got this year. But think about what you have to show your kids and tell your friends and what you remember that you stuck it out and, and, and came through and still, you know, accomplished it. It's, it's something to be proud of. But on that note, um, I would, I would say one of the things, you know, patience is the biggest thing I've had to yeah. 
to, to, to figure out from compound to traditional. And the one thing, and, and I've told Frank this before, if you've done your job, there's no need to rush once you're in the, the red zone, if you've done your job, because they don't know you're there. They didn't know you were there an hour ago. You don't need to do anything stupid or make rash decisions if you've done your job because you do get tunnel vision. And so me being a compound guy, I'd get to 50 and just shoot, you know, like, okay, well now I'm like, okay, I need to cut that down by 25, but I don't need to rush that 25 yards. There's a time to rush. There's a time I'll run. I mean, you explain it very well. And I don't think a lot of people get that. I've seen Clay Lancaster guys grab guys by the back of the neck that are going slow and watch him stock like 200 yards in front of him and him just run up there and grab him and be like, what are you, what are you doing? Like get up there and there's a time you can run and there's a time that you've, you know, can't run or can't move, but being patient and assessing the situation and double tapping what you guys have already said, tunnel vision is a mother. Um, you get stuck on one animal and you're watching that one and not watching the surroundings. There's probably maybe a little, you know, there's a creeper in there watching you you don't even know about. So trying to assess the situation all the time and, and make conscious decisions when you're in that red zone. What screwed me up the most, though, is, is patience, not being patient enough to even wait 15 seconds and thinking you have to rush it. Um, the patience thing's been huge. And as far as the success side is the same thing, being patient, but being able to assess and make good conscious decisions, not bad ones, especially when you're close up and watching like what you do. I can't say I've ever watched Frank because we're always together, but 10 miles apart, making in that last 30 yards, the decisions you make are so much more vital than they are at 60. And I'm talking branches, well, you get naked. I mean, pulling your pants off, rolling your pants up. Well, Matt Davis, not to bring up bad shit, how big was that deer that first day they said, 180, 190? He basically walked upright to mm-hmm. 20 yards. Or how close did he get? I, what did Lander say? Uh, somewhere around there, yeah. Mm. So let's say sub 15 to 20 yards, easy, right? Yeah. And, I mean, not picking on Matt Davis, this just happened. Had snot running down his nose, brushed his bino harness. Mm -hmm. That was the end of that. So having, you know, when I say conscious decisions, as simple as brushing the bino harness. And I was telling Frank, I'm going to have to go back to that Rick Young outdoors, the bungee, Mm -hmm. because the noise pulling the binos out. And I think I'm going to run those Zeiss. By the way, you need to look at those, those Zeiss SFs, uh, the range finding binoculars. Oh, man. Just for that. They're uh-huh. so clear and picking up that because that extra movement. Yep. And you're more of a ninja than anyone, but, you know, when you get in close making, I mean, the smallest thing can cause a crisis level. As, you know, if you've taken six hours to get in close and you brush your hand up against your bino harness and the deer runs away. Uh, that, it'll make you sick. Yeah, literally. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I. it was funny. I was up hunting... Uh, in Nevada there with, with Cody Kellum about uh, three or four years ago. And, uh, you know, he's got a massive amount of elk hunting experience and, and, uh, you know, is pretty well dialed in there. I don't know that you could probably perfect his system much better than what he does, but getting up there in the mountains hunting mule deer is a, you know, I don't say it's a new game for him. He's hunted mule deer before, but he hasn't 
um, he hasn't done it to the level or degree that I have. And and uh, I got up there, and he's he's got a bino harness that's made out of Cordura. And I was like, dude, that's going to be a problem. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. He kind of looks at me like I have four eyeballs. And it's like, no, man, seriously. That I mean, I, I told him, I said, look, I took my fingernail, scratched it on it, and it's like – and I was like, you just can't have something that noisy on you when you're, you know, sneaking on a deer in the middle of the day and there's just a really, really light breeze going. And I mean, you can literally hear a grasshopper from 100 yards, you know, rubbing his his uh, wings, your feet together, whatever, making the little cricking sound. And and uh, after the first dock, he's like, dude, now I understand yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's like, I mean, I... I've got the the quietest bino harness that I've found on the market and I still – it's been too noisy and I've dropped my binoculars and left them behind on that last 30 or 40 yards. And you don't – I mean there's times when you at 20 yards need your binoculars, yeah. you know. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm working with uh, with somebody, a company on a improved binocular harness and I, I should have checked in with them to see if I'm allowed to talk about it at all. But – It'll be um, a much better one than even the the ones that I've used in the past from a quiet stand because there's there's problems not only with the fabric but then the lid you know getting being able to have the lid you know c- cover your binoculars to protect it during um, you know during inclement weather but then also being able to get the lid clear of being able to pull your binoculars in and out and not having you know that be a problem um, just you know, getting your binoculars in and out of the pouch. And like you said, going back to that bungee, that's about as quiet of a system as you can, as you can get. Well, I ran that Rick Young for years before. And so with that, um, that we, we just got these in and I hate to speak too much about anything until you've used them for a long time, but that range finding dice, I'm not shitting you, man. It's a game changer. I mean, are those 10 power? The ones I have are 10. They yeah. have eights and tens. Okay. And Frank, you've screwed around with them some, but extremely fast range, right? I mean, immediate feedback. And then you can do the cut. So you can do the, the shooting distance, uh-huh. but you can also do the actual and the angle if you want to use a cut chart and about 400 different things. There's an app on your phone. Holy cow. But for that, you can change it on your phone. But for me, <laughs> You know, I have to, because I haven't been doing this shit that long, I have to assess everything and go back and be like, okay, how many times did I get lucky where I've brushed that harness and been like, fuck, and then the deer just pop its head and then wait five minutes and go back to normal. Yeah. And so for for me, that bungee, and there's like a neoprene wrap that I can use and then tuck behind it. And and actually, I'm going to turn this thing off record when we're done here and ask you about what you're building, because... There's always improvements on a system, and that's one thing why you came down here today. Um, if I can't run that harness, because I do have some pretty key survival gear in the harness, I need to have a, an assault pack or a, um, right. some. We'll have to come up with some catchy name. It'll probably be stalker involved since you're going to design it. But you had talked about you wanted a a final approach pack where you can put your boots in there. Which is a great idea because the first year I shot with Frank, I lost my boots three times. And I mean, lost my boots. And I had to go back and find them to kill the deer because I stalked the wrong rock. 
where if I had something that my boots were tucked in, I actually talk about it a little bit, what you're wanting, because we're actually going to design it today. But what are you wanting in that pack? Yeah. So I mean, going back to your talking about leaving your boots, I had to leave mine overnight one time. <laughs> Coming out like a hobo. Yeah. And that wasn't the most pleasant experience. That was in Arizona with cactuses and stuff. Oh my so gosh. yeah, it wasn't the greatest situation. Um, but basically what my, my thoughts were is a, um, is a, you know, a small pack, so you know the smaller the better to a degree that you'd leave your main pack. You'd so this would be like an accessory pocket that would attach to your pack, so it runs double duty. Because obviously you could throw a small day pack in your pack, but then you're carrying around extra weight that you wouldn't want to have to carry it. So this is more like an accessory pocket that has shoulder straps, so you can carry it as your pack. And an ideal situation would be to have a clip-in system so you could pull your bino, you'll leave, your, say, the straps from your bino harness. And this is just a, you know, would be an ancillary benefit just to kind of cut some weight, but not all that critical because your bino harness straps don't weigh that much. But it would be pretty cool to be able to clip your bino harness into the straps on this pack. Um, but in any case, a pack that you could have as hydration you could carry you know your your uh, license and tag in there maybe your kill kit um, you'd be able to to have water in there um, and then most importantly in the back you would have um, like a, a you know combination of a net pocket with some uh, a bungee strap system that when you it came time to drop your boots rather than dropping them and leaving them somewhere then you could stick them into you know the back of your your uh, little pack there and then carry them around and I actually see this more really in my mind um, even more of a benefit for elk hunters that are maybe employing a spot and stock um, tactic with elk or shadowing them where you're in a situation where you you know it's too noisy for you to use your boots and so you're following them because I've had this happen to me in fact the time that I had to leave my boots but well I lost my boots and couldn't get back to them overnight was I was elk hunting but I've had it happen other times when I'm elk hunting where I've you know, stalked a, a group of feeding elk, took my boots off, and then the elk started, you know, moving, and I was following along behind them, and I'm getting further and further from my boots. Um, mule deer are typically stationary as you're stalking them in midday, but there are circumstances if you're stalking them morning or, or evening when they're up feeding, and you may run into the same situation, or you get a shot at a buck, you know, and you're in your socks, and, and you maybe a you either make a bad hit or, or you're following up on a shot or the buck runs a little ways and then you, um, you know, spooks maybe runs a little ways and you continue your stock and then you're just getting further and further from your boots. But that's kind of what my thought process was, you know, with this. Well, I like it. I've actually talked to, to, to Donnie about it a little bit different, but the same situation where um, the boots or you get, um, you get pinned down for a long, right. long time. So obviously if it's big enough to hold maybe a rain jacket for me, the, the trioxane tablets and, and just a basic way to start a fire in case, um, my issues a couple of times been fog where I've dropped mm -hmm. my pack and had my shoes on, but then I couldn't find my pack, let alone my camp because right. uh, fogs come in. And so, Having something, and I'm kind of going back and forth between a lid or kind of a, a grab it like we did with the Sherman pocket where um, 
where if it's a lid and it unbuckles, it's pulling duties as a lid. But, um, you know, if you had two kind of um, either mesh or nylon stretchy pockets in the back, the toe of your boots could go in or Nalgene bottles and then bungee above that. Um, and then, you know, some guys don't like to have a quiver on. So, you know, some guys might put their quiver on that thing. I I, I like having the quiver on my boat because I need all the ammo I can get readily available. Yeah. But um, uh, having those things is huge. And um, I, last year, I don't, what are those ninja shoe? I got these Vibram. Oh, I'm not sure what yours are. I are need to look five, at them. Five fingers or? No, but they're softer and more flexible than a five finger, but they, they, you can pop them on super easy and I put socks over them. Okay. It's nice. Huh. Um, cause I can step on cactus. Um, All right. Alberta, I killed that buck in Alberta with them. And so. There's not really any negative side to them. And the good thing is, is if you had those in stocking socks mm-hmm. and and you had to move, you could have your boots and still be pretty agile on rough terrain right. with them because it's just enough Vibram to keep spikes from going in your feet. Uh-huh. But I pull my big socks over the top of them. Gotcha. Um, and it's super quiet. And that's probably, I'd have those in those nylon pockets, swap them out for my boots and put my socks on because i've got feet like a three-year-old girl and (laughs) so the times when i really have to to move like when i came down this year on that that buck trying to get down that steep hillside and socks i'd my my toes had blown through my stocking socks Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to get on those rocks trying to move around a position where that's when we came up right i figured out that ninja shoe thing with socks over them because i'm like i have got to be able to jump from cliff to cliff or move through sharp pea gravel stuff quicker but still silent without because it'll look like a sniper for me if i get hit step on the wrong rock it'll drop me and so that kind of system will be good so it'll be cool we'll get bender down here when we get off this and kind of go to work on that thing because i think a lot of people could use it especially if you can use it just as a pack um, in general and as a accessory to, to obviously, you know, buckle onto your pack. So another thing too, you know, from a, a gear standpoint to put in there is a headlamp. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, cause that's something that we didn't bring up, but it's a pretty obvious one that as if you don't have it with you and there's a, you know, if you don't have a pack like that, the side pockets of your pants, you're only going to be able to carry so much stuff. Like I'll, you know, I'll put my, I'll either put my face camo on before I leave my, uh, my backpack, you know, or stick it in you know, one side pocket. Then I've got my stocking socks in the other one and I'm videoing. So I've got a GoPro with me and, you know, your hands are full and sometimes you're carrying some of your extra stuff and it just kind of, kind of ends up being a cluster by the time you are packing everything over that you're going to need for your stock. Well, a lot of, and I don't know, cause Frank and I were apart, but there was uh, several times on this last hunt and, and I kind of, you know, going back through time on different stocks for mule deer or goats or sheep or whatever or elk, um, but laziness is part of it. I mean, packing that big ass pack, um, just to keep it close to you can be a, a hindrance to yep. a certain degree. And so mm-hmm. if you, um, and I carry that wristwatch GPS, but if I can drop my pack or even leave it, I hate to say it, but leave it a mile away, but grab that assault pack where that final approach pack, um, you know, and fill it quickly because, I mean, I was 
I mean, people have heard me say it. I got to a point because my ass was kicked so bad, I was grabbing a life straw and just that's all I was taking yep. and then sucking water out of the well, creek the, on the way back. Yeah, and there's times, I mean, obviously you're going to be able to move faster when you're not carrying a full-size pack with your, you know, your tripod, your spotting scope and all your day stuff. Um, and there's times when you, I mean, any time that, that I get a deer bedded in a good stock, a good spot for a stock, my goal is to get there absolutely as quickly as I can because you never know when that buck's going to stand up and either completely move to a different area or just get up and feed. And then maybe that buck gets up, feeds for a bit, and then beds in a spot that's not as ideal for your stock. So if I can do my, you know, circle around behind them and get in as, as close as I can loop, if I can do that in 15 minutes instead of 30 minutes or even 15 minutes instead of 20 minutes because I'm going light, then that five minutes or that 15 or whatever it takes that I'm cutting off could be the difference between me getting a shot or that deer getting up and walking away. I mean, did you watch that video that I did on YouTube, the high country uh, one from th my buck from this year that I shot? No, I haven't. Oh, you got to watch that one. It's pretty cool. Um, I mean, I watched the final shot, but that's just because I think uh, Tim sent it to me. Okay. I didn't watch the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So, By the way, that was pretty fucking awesome, I must say. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that, <laughs> that was sweet. But this, this that's another classic situation where if I had got there 10 minutes later or even five minutes later, I things might not have worked out for me. So this buck beds underneath this rim rock on the far side of the basin, and I've got to make a, I don't know, mile or so loop back around behind him, drop down, get up into the rim rock, you know, above him. And I came down to the left at first trying to get a shot angle at him in his bed. And, and there was another buck that was directly below me, a smaller one. So I couldn't sneak out too far into the edge of the rim rock for fear of getting picked off by the smaller one. So then I backed up and, and went back up and around. And just as I'm coming back up and around to approach from a different angle, the buck had gotten up and, uh, and you know, gotten up to feed and then fed out. And I got a shot at him at six yards. Yeah. <laughs> and so had I have carried my back because I left my backpack on that on that instance. So had I carried my pack, it would have slowed me down with that extra weight and maybe that wouldn't have worked out. So the other thing too is um well you weren't with me but a few different times where you let's say creep up to an edge and you're a hundred yards, but you're trying to reassess once you've closed the distance and you have that big pack and let's say there's something in it you need, dragging it is a a pain. You know what I mean? If you where if you have that little thing on your back or you just need to grab it, pick it up and move it over. Yep. Um it's just easier. So the more especially with a stick bow where silence is a key, you know, mm -hmm. or speed, um yep. is is becoming more and more, you know, things are becoming more and more important to me the more stuff I, you know, I'm doing with the stick bow and I I it it goes in line with a compound. I mean, if it helps with a stick bow, it's certainly going to help with a compound. And you've you've you stocked on an empty bed last year, and your boots were freaking four hundred yards from you, weren't they? Yeah, I've 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 run into some situations where I've lost my boots as well, and it's it yeah, it's frustrating when you're looking for them and you're wasting time doing that instead of uh, moving on to the next thing. So yeah, I had another scenario. Well, it didn't happen to me, but a buddy of mine that he uh, he stalked a buck. Um, in Nevada, you know, heat of the day, got down. So this buck, it was it's this really cool spot. So there's this giant boulder and it's, uh, it's 
when it, I don't know if it fell or exactly what happened, but it's basically, it's got like almost a cave underneath it. And uh, it's a big flat rock. So you're coming down from above, you can just walk right out onto the top of this rock. And then you're literally eight feet of solid rock directly above whatever. And if something, assuming, you know, something bedded underneath there, well, he had watched a buck come up the hill feeding and then tucked underneath this rock and bedded under there. So he did the loop around, came right down in and uh, sat down on top of this rock while this buck is bedded in there. Um, and then sat for just shy of four hours with the sun beating down <laughs> on him with no, you know, no uh, water. So he's dying of dehydration up on top of this rock. And now had he had that pack, then, you know, or a, um, a, a hydration bag with him or something, he would have been a hell of a lot more comfortable. Um, and then the unfortunate thing for him is he set up for a shot for this buck, you know, right-handed shooter. He figured, okay, this deer is going to come out, you know, same way he went in. And so he set up for a shot to the left. Of course, the buck gets up, comes out to the right. So, and he's shooting a longbow and he swung to the right, try, you know, had to short draw it and muff the shot, you know, when the deer had a, like a 15 yard shot and how do you, you know, in hindsight, and that's another thing too, it's like the decisions you make. And the more you've done it, the more you think about these kind of things as you position yourself um, or, you know, during your stock, the decisions you make, but all those little decisions that you make, how they affect you. Had he have set up for a shot to the right, he would have rotated himself, say, maybe another 90 degrees. Well, you can always turn back and swing harder to your left and pivot at the waist. And it's much easier to make that shot cranking around hard to your left for a right-handed shooter than it is to try to pivot 90 degrees to your right and make that shot as a right-handed shooter. And something that I'm sure, you know, had that situation happen to him again or a similar that initially he would say, okay, well, this deer can come out to the right, even though I think it's going to come out to the left, I should position myself so that I I can make that shot if that, even if it's a lower probability that that deer comes out to the right and uh, be able to pivot around more, you know, so, uh, tree stand guys are going to deal with that kind of scenario a lot. And those guys, you know, that's kind of inbred into your thinking, I think as a whitetail guy, but for mule deer hunters, um, you know, if you're plopped down and you can't, you know, just change your foot position. I think he was kneeling or sitting or something to that effect, but it, it impacted his ability to be able to get a shot and, and subsequently fill his tag. That, that mule deer, um, in 16, um, the one before I shot that one, I was stuck in one position for, I don't know, three or four hours in one spot, like 55 yards from this buck. And I didn't have anything. And, uh, from a guy who I've already peed twice on this podcast for a guy who drinks water like I do. That was another thing where, you know, I dropped my, I had a Terry all and I dropped it above and uh, even the Terry all compared to a much smaller pack, it would have been nice to have something on my back, just water to sip from and lay in there for that long. And the thing is with, even with a, like I say, compound or stick bow with the, the compound, I probably would have just shot it, even though maybe it not have been the most ethical shot, but with the stick, um, I was in a position just praying he'd get up and move towards me or something would change slightly to allow me to move closer. But that took three or four hours where I was laying there and it sucked because I didn't have anything. And I also eat like a horse. So not only was I hungry, I was also freezing and I was thirsty. Um, and I was laying there for 
ever. And, and, and that's kind of what you have to do sometimes to, I mean, you got to have that commitment and anything that can help you stay longer. Um, cause I know some guys patience wise, they'll just say, screw it. I'm going to get up and try and get a shot or, or they might just give up and, and move on where if you can, the longer you can stay in some positions, the better off you're going to be as far as is getting a shot at cer- certain times. Anyway, I'm learning that more and more every day with the with a stick bow, <laughs> but, uh, what, um, what's going on at, at Stalker? Have you guys, it looks like you're busy as hell. Yeah, no, we're, uh, we're thick in it right now. You know, a lot of guys that are getting ready for, um, you know, for the season, they're wanting to pick up a stick bow for the first time or get themselves a new bow. We're working on their bows right now. Uh, and we're, we're selling stock bows like crazy. I, was, I, think, I, I think I was telling Frank while you were in the bathroom um, before we started recording that that uh, we sold geez, three stock bows in, in uh, less than a 24-hour period uh, yesterday. So it was, uh, you know, guys are thinking about it now and, and uh, you know, about either picking up a new bow or, or you know, trying it out. And um, so it's it's been you know business has been good. We've been cranking them out. Uh, one of my employees, uh, Jake Morris, he worked for me for about a year and a half. They had moved out to Colorado here from California. Had been working for me for about a, actually I guess he'd been working for me about two and a half years really because he had been working for me for about a year there in California as well. But he ended up picking up a um, a a promotional promotion opportunity for one of his old co-workers back in California. So he just left uh, last month, moved back to California. So we're a man down. I'm going to end up hiring um, a new guy at some point this year. And I haven't decided if it's sooner or, or later, but um, you know, just to throw it out there, I'm, I'm going to be looking for somebody. If, uh, if there's people that are interested, um, it's going to, I'm looking for somebody with some mad woodworking skills who's got a lot of experience with kind of more of the furniture cabinet end of the, of the you know, woodworking experience versus somebody that's, you know, proficient with a skill saw. That's not the, the kind <laughs> of you know, tool set or experience that I'm going to be going to be looking for. But I don't know if it'll be before or after hunting season. And I imagine some of that will come down to, you know, when I find the right person and what their availability is and their job needs and what have you. But Definitely more of a finished carpenter type of a thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's going to be not like, hey, I can I can nail up baseboard and crown molding. It's going to be like, hey, I, you know, super detail oriented and, and got, you know, a lot of the, the finer woodworking skills because um, it, it was, you know, I'd been doing construction before I got into to, uh, um, building bows and did radius staircases and geometric patterns, inlaid patterns and hardwood floors. And so I was doing a lot and built some furniture. And so I did a lot of the, um, you know, really more challenging end of the woodworking. And I thought, yeah, I, I, I mean, I did have a good background for that transition, but it was a whole nother level when you're working with bows and you have a dynamic material, you know, you're getting a, um, a limb to bend versus building a, you know, a curved railing that once you put it in place, that thing's never going to move. Um, so it, by the way, I hate spiral staircases. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) They're, they're challenging. Um, I did, I've done a lot of them in my day, but, uh, that was kind of basically all I did probably the last 10 years was working on, on, uh, stairs and handrails. Yeah. You can about name your price once you get 
good oh, at yeah. those things because yeah. not many people are. No, it's a, there's not a lot of people that, that can do them. And uh, I'm, man, I tell you, I, I thank my lucky stars now that I don't, I tell my wife all the time, I'm so glad I am done doing construction. And I enjoyed it when I did it. But now that I'm removed from it and all the unpacking, you know, my my work van in the rain and and uh, driving two hours each way. And, oh, dude, I'm I'm so over that that life. Yeah. One of our best podcasts we've had is was Randy Cooling, which we talked very little about. Uh, yeah, I, um, <laughs> I remember that one. That was pretty damn funny. Yeah. And I was think I, I think I brought up it was either. um offset staircase or spiral uh, iron workers because we had to do the handrail and yep. the glass work and um it's a it's a you know you you think um the rise and the run and yep. it's the basic same way as you look at um if you start talking about cutting yardage right you you have the the straight out distance to um you know if you if you drop the plumb bob straight to the mm-hmm. animal you go vertical you have that distance and then you have the drop Anyway, when you start to talk about rise and run and then you got to deduct, um, well, I don't need to explain to people how to do it, uh, but you have the treads, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. you have to take those things into consideration. And, and it's not complex math like trigonometry. It's complex what I call construction math. Right. Like you have to be able to see the future of what you're doing. And by no means, I mean, I don't know. There's some of the different handrails and, and things we did for staircases where it looked like Dexter. I had so many yeah. um, string lines out to, to, to double check and triple check because like with anything with glass, if you order it wrong, there's there's no changing the size of it. It's throwing getting thrown away. There's only so much you can fudge. Yeah, I don't I don't miss it at all. Yeah. yeah. It's it's stressful, man. <laughs> yeah. Super stressful. And then the 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 when you have, you know, a radius staircase and you have the inside radius versus the outside yes. radius and the rise is the same and the run is different and you look at the shape of the, you know, the the angle of the inside rail versus the outside rail. And if you have them laying there on the floor, it's like, dude, there's no way yeah. that those that's going to work, man. You got one that's twisted up, looks like it's been laid in the sun, you know, and and then the other one is almost basically flat and straight in comparison. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. There was times because um, we would do um, more or less like uh, segmented radius entryways. Uh-huh. So when you do it like a segmented, radius the the nice thing is you can chalk it out right uh, yep. ahead of time and and with the aluminum portion you you cut it to so you can dry fit everything yeah um but you know when you have all that lined up and then you have entryway uh when i say entry you have interior finishes that have to coincide with your exterior finish so you can't redneck too much because right. there's shit going on inside that has to marry up and then after all that gets put in you have to put in like a, a ricks and floor check where there's a hole in the ground and you have to hang a glass door. Um, and then, you know, you have a center line, which is poured from the outside as far as the, the walkway where that center line has to match up with the center of the door. I barely graduated fucking high school, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm leading crews doing this and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. right? And, and what people don't understand, well, you do, if how the lovely construction life works, especially when you have an asshole um, superintendent, we have what's called back charging. And so <laughs> when you screw that up, you get back charged by the other uh, subcontractors depending because you've screwed their life up and then they, it's cost them money and it's your fault. And, and, then, the, and then that subcontractor is not just charging you for 
fixing it. He's charging you for fixing it plus the time that he screwed up and yeah. he got back charged <laughs> by somebody else. So he's making up that money he lost on the last one. Oh, good God almighty. I mean, Frank, be glad you never got into construction too much. You did some for a while, didn't you? Electrical, yeah. Yeah, I just, um, uh, I you know, going thinking of some of the different things that we we did and, and, and have had to back charge other people. And then you, with... Uh, with what I did, you have leaking and mold. Um, and you want to talk about people jumping around like the world's on fire. Wait till you have mold in the fucking building. Like that is hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars of, yep. of back charging. How do you fix that? Oh, you have to tear you, down the walls? No, you got a hot... <laughs> not to get subject to archery, but I've been on several troubleshooting mold jobs because really what it boils down to is there's going to be three to five um, different uh, trades. And all of them are pointing fingers, blaming someone else. So you'll have the roofers, right, and whoever did the parapet cap and the roofing, and then you have the glass guys and what they did. And then usually there's going to be trim work like with what you did involved because you've ruined their shit too, right? Like if you are you leaked and you ruined yep. all your work, he's going to have to say how much he's going to charge to fix this. And then you have the mold aspect and generally carpet because the carpet's ruined too. All of that's fine and dandy until mold comes into play because then it becomes a, a toxic type right. of a dude it's fucked black, I mean, black mold is pretty serious right yeah yeah well and let me you, the m word right it's like voldemort <laughs> you go to a job and like someone even brings up mold on a leak you'll see guys start to get slapped like it's bad you don't want to bring it up because whether there's mold or not if there's leaking mold is a potential problem and so then you're ripping out walls right um and then that's back charge so after all that shit happens and you can chime in here because i'm sure you've had to deal with this whoever's fault it is has to pay the bill at the end of it so believe me as a glass guy where shit leaks you don't want it to be your fault so you're only there to blame someone else i hate to say you know you're there to prove your innocence but have you ever been in those situations Dude, yeah <laughs> I, I, I had one of my employees was nailing in some baseboard one friday afternoon and he's running the stud finder along the wall and uh you know nailing it off as he goes and so he finishes up for the day goes home uh, they roll in Monday morning, and the ceiling in the up the ceiling in the dining room downstairs had collapsed. There's water all over the floor. We had just installed and sanded this hardwood floor. We were just getting ready to put a coat of finish on it that Monday, and uh, there's all this you know wet sheetrock and and uh, insulation hanging down, and it's like oh son of a bitch. So we start. It's like okay, well the the plumber got a leak, so I start you know adding up for this estimate on what it's going to cost this plumber to to repair all the hardwood floor the baseboard you know all this stuff and and come to find out my guy had uh hit a water line in the wall the stud sensor picked up the copper pipe yeah. and he you know the million dollar shot runs a nail right into the um the copper line and it's squirting water all weekend long and eventually that leak collapses so i ended up instead of <laughs> instead of back charging i'm up there paying the sheet rocker the insulation guy yeah. tearing up all my hardwood <laughs> flooring and yeah we've you know had some doozies that can, and that can cost you a, a company i mean depending yeah. upon finance Actually, what it hits, and there was a couple jobs where um, we we went out where um, 
you're trying to figure out why our curtain wall's leaking, right? And and with a curtain wall, there's it's a it's a gutter, right? Um, uh, like an all glass wall. Anyway, and I'm thinking, okay, I put this in, and I know we did it right. They can take on a lot of water, and then you get up to the top, the parapet cap, and it's basically pissing water straight into your curtain wall mullion, filling up a a, a two and a half by seven inch tube, so full of water. Um, that eventually, obviously, as it goes up, it's going to find through screw, hole, screw holes and then, you know, where you your horizontals attached with a shear block and it'll wa- find water through there and then it'll leak down. And as it leaks down the, the curtain wall, when you're in the jam, it goes into hardwood, generally drywall and hardwood. Well, with hardwood, obviously, like it, it depending upon how expensive it was, you know more about this. If it's custom hardwood to match that shit some of it was coming from italy like and so dude it's it's a fucking shit sandwich like and literally everyone is there blaming everyone else like it gets pretty violent like it's <laughs> well you say and you talked about the mold thing the black mold and it's like okay well big deal black mold well it for some people and i imagine the strains of mold can be different but it can cause serious neurological damage and sometimes even death and i remember watching a forensic files and I, uh, I don't remember if it had killed the, the family or members of the family or just caused like this severe neurological issues. But they had, it took them a, quite a while to figure out what it was. And eventually, once they determined it, they ended up having to burn the house down yeah. <laughs> because of the, uh, the pervasive black mold throughout. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, and now I think insurance companies, some of them won't you know, it's written out of the policy specifically that if there's black mold, then, you know, they don't cover that. Yeah. Well, there's a, I think I talked about this on the Randy cooling podcast, but my old employer, this isn't black mold, but just, you know, there's certain windows when you have um, like these casement windows, they have internal louvers for blinds inside the, yep. and you twist and the blind goes up and they're expensive. Yep. And there's a, one job specifically, there was like 290 of these. And he, you have, when you measure your opening, it's an RO, a rough opening. And you take that rough opening and then you deduct for your caulking bead um, and then for basically expansion and, and the build, movement of the building. And anyway, whatever he did, he added to the RO. Oh, no. So we have a, a warehouse <laughs> full. I mean, we're a few hundred thousand dollars in this is how crooked it is or how big of a deal it is. He had a guy break in and flip him over. And I mean, I can't get in trouble now, but like he basically had a, a vandalism insurance claim. And so all of them got broken and it looked like uh, vandalism, but there was no vandalism involved. <laughs> it was mismeasurement. <laughs> it was, yeah. There, there's some squirrely shit that go. There t- it takes a lot of drugs and beer to put one of them buildings together. It's insane when you start looking at it and how one of them... When you start talking about the the big ones, how they actually c- finish it, considering it's mostly guys that barely graduated high school and just need a job, that all that shit comes together to a final product that looks pretty freaking good is 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 amazing. And you know, you have some guys in there. Some of this has been talked about before, but you know, you get core drillers for the bike rails and 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 shit like that. And we're up in the snorkel lift and we're putting on snap cover and. There's this dude down below, and he's pulling his tape measure out and then bend it in half. He couldn't divide by two. Oh, no. <laughs> and so he's doing that to figure out where he's marking for the, the center lines. Uh-huh. So he's this is the, the superintendent's right-hand man, which that should tell you something. 
and then a core driller who's a subcontractor comes out and it's like a diamond tipped hole saw that and that water comes down to to cool it off and then they they drill these well you know that that once that rabbit's out of the hat it, it ain't going fucking back in right and so the core driller drills off of this guy and you know we called it i'm like dude if he's dividing his tape in half that shit ain't gonna ever line up where the problem was that core driller in schools part of it's where the door swings open and bumps a big concrete what do you call those pylon or whatever right well if the door misses it obviously you don't want it just a blue fucking tube there for no reason and the core driller i think how this works he can lay it out or the superintendent will lay it out for the core driller and the core driller jobs easy so they laid it out for him and you figure if the first one's off, it's exponential. It's like Celsius yep. and Fahrenheit. It right. just gets fucking worse as you go down, right? So none of that shit fit. And, of course, we're in the – I should have said something, but I was laughing too hard because when the cork driller came out the next day, it doesn't take a genius to figure out when the door swings open the, the hole – before they pour in, you know, the different accessories or whatever, the hole's three inches from the door. It's a problem, and it, you you can't just fill in the hole unless the architect, because you do a walkthrough, and when they walk through, if they see all of these patched holes in the concrete, oh, they no. generally frown on that shit. So, <laughs> anyway, but, but back back to business here, just because we're running on an hour and a half, um, we're gonna do, which we really didn't talk about it that much. You've got a, a hooter shooter, a shooting machine. Yeah, so a couple of things. Got a hooter shooter, and then the the critical tool in play in this is a uh, it's called a lab radar, and similar but way different than a chronograph. So a chronograph measures your arrow speed at one fixed distance. So most people are shooting it, you know, shooting their bow through it at two or three feet and they're getting essentially their muzzle velocity. And that is great for measuring bow performance. Whereas, um, the lab radar is like, like the name implies it uses radar and, uh, it measures, um, at, essentially muzzle velocity 10 20 30 every 10 yards uh, out to 100 yards and so um, when I was out there in uh, Salt Lake at the expo I um, talked to Phil over there at No Limits and uh, we got to shoot in the breeze and and I told him about this these tests that I'd been wanting to do well I was going to be limited to doing it outdoors because I don't have a 40 yard indoor range unlike him so he uh, he suggested that I we come down there and collaborate and do this uh, do this test where essentially instead of measuring bow performance, what you're doing essentially is measuring aeroballistics, and so coming up with a bunch of different fletching configurations, different fletch lengths, sizes, amount of offset or helical, um, different fletch profiles, and then shoot them down range and watch that decay of arrow velocity so we can test. And then in conjunction with that, using um, decibel meters so that we're shooting past these microphones that'll measure the noise of the fletching. And uh, so what we're talking about doing is coming up with a bunch of different configurations, arrow configurations, so we can kind of watch um, you know, what happens as that arrow goes down range, how fast it's slowing down and then also how much noise these fletchings are making. Yeah, broadheads would be another good one to to check and see. That's a big question I get is vented versus solid because sure. I'm, I'm a solid broadhead guy more than vented. But 
all of those things, you know, just rednecking it's down in, I mean, we've done it, stand down at 70 yards and shoot at 80 and listen right. to it whiz by to where you're checking what's the quietest vein. And um, the other thing, too, is offset to helical. How much of a difference does it make? Because ideally, I've always shot offset with a compound, not helical. But if you can shoot helical and there's not that much diminishing returns, it's arguable to say, why why wouldn't you shoot helical if if there's not because it will stabilize the arrow better and then two is a five inch chicken feather compared to a three or four three inch compared to three five inch how much velocity you're losing which is momentum at the end of the day to put you know with your arrow weight yeah it's i'm, I'm intrigued by it just because i'm curious to see you know at this point i'm kind of a knuckle dragger and it i just shoot through shit but it would be cool to know what's what and who's who as far as the different setups yeah i mean the i think that there's a lot of empirical data that we can get from these tests um, and that'll remove like it was kind of interesting. I was listening to the podcast you had with uh, T-Bone and he was talking about um, now the everything I've ever heard is that parabolic fletching is quieter than a shield cut. Mm-hmm. But he stated the opposite. Yep. And so I, that kind of surprised me because he's a very experienced archer himself. Um, and I don't know if that was, uh, you know, an opinion or if that was hard fact. So this is something that we're going to be able to actually physically measure and then get real data. And I, I'm really excited about shooting those um, plastic veins there that, you know, feather veins, if you will, that uh, AAE has just come up with. See what kind of uh, noise standpoint they have versus feathers. Because they technically should be quieter. Sure. A vein. Mm-hmm. But I went from parabol- shield to parabolic because I was so paranoid that first year that everybody told me shield was louder. So yep. I went to parabolic. Now, one thing good, at least with my stick bow setup, is I have um, natural turkey feathers um, that are uh, parabolic or shield cut. Yeah. And then I have, which are the same length and I have a bunch that are parabolic. Right. So I'd be curious to see, uh, cause I need every advantage I can get that thing's not exactly flying down range at epic speeds, um, you know, for noise. And I got into a huge argument with, well, I got into multiple arguments with Tim Gillingham on a recent podcast. He's, he's not an Ashby. He's like anti. So he's total like gone full dimwit on the other end of the spectrum like 375 Uh grain arrow doing 330 with a mechanical and he's stating that the animal hears the arrow not the bow and i'm like i shoot a really loud arrow and i know that's not true they're hearing your bow because they don't hear mine because i'm getting them on the second or third shot uh sometimes right Uh they don't run and so there's something to be said though of how much you know, they are hearing that arrow. It's because they got to be hearing it some. There's no way around it. I mean, you hear a bird fly by, you're going to duck real quick. So, yeah, I flung a couple arrows by Brian just to show him how loud that was in that 2016 when I clipped that elk. Uh I winged one probably enough to say people would be mad at me to scare the shit out of him just to show him. And he hit the ground. And I was like, dude, it's loud. Those things are loud. And that's when I went from shield to parabolic. I only like shield because they look cooler. I mean, yeah. it really doesn't matter to me, yeah. but the shield look cooler. Well, for the guys that are using that um, fletching as an extra anchor indicator, you know, touching the feather of the corner or touching the feather to your to your nose there, yeah. that the parabolic works a lot better than a. Um, excuse me, the shield cut works a lot better than the parabolic. So there's a you know strong argument. Some guys will fletch them with one shield cut, you know, so that they can use that to touch their nose, and the and the others are parabolic. Uh, but I, you know, I want to test out all the way from 
you know, inch and seven eighths, say four fletch to on all the way up to five and then do some two fletch and, you know, basically come up with a, a range of, of uh, you know, fletching configurations, anything that might be practical to use in the field. Um, and obviously there's, this is all empirical data that we can gather that'll say, okay, this fletching configuration makes this much noise and, and, you know, from point blank to 40 yards, it slows it down or from 30 to 40, it loses this percentage. Whereas, um, a three fletch four inch loses this much and we'll be able to compare all that stuff. But the, the one thing that'll still be, um, that we won't really be able to decipher is what's going to work best for an individual, um, you know, as far as is, are, is your setup going to need the stabilization of three, five inch feathers versus are you going to be able to get away with three, three inch feathers? And that's going to be determined on, you know, how well tuned each person's setup is because the, the, um, the more, stabilization that you need, the longer the fletching you're going to need to use. Mm -hmm. If you have a really forgiving setup, then you're going to be able to get away with shorter feathers. The advantage of that is it's going to make less noise in flight. It's going to drop less. So the the intrigue with maintaining your velocity at a higher percentage downrange is that that window that you can make a, you know, still land in that eight inch kill zone might be from, you know, say 34 to 36 yards, a two, you know, a two yard window that you have to have your range estimation within, it might push out to a three or four yard um, because your arrow is still maintained more um, speed as it goes down range. So th that's the kind of stuff that I'm, that I'm intrigued by. It's like, how, how much noise does that, does that, um, setup make and then how much uh, you know how much speed difference is there because it, if look if there's no difference in noise between and I know that this isn't going to be the case but if there's no difference in noise between three two inch feathers versus three five inch feathers and there's no difference in velocity decay between those two setups obviously go with the longer fletching because it's going to do a better job stabilizing it's going to be more forgiving for you to shoot but if there's a huge difference then you might look at erroring towards that smaller fletching configuration if you can get your broadheads to fly and group consistently right and that's the number one reason i go with five is is really a, a precautionary factor of bad release and stabilization and i i right now well, and I'm too chicken to change, but it it it, it outweighs it for me to use that uh, in comparison to the to the downsides. Which one? They are like a parachute. Um, you know, you do lose velocity fairly quickly with you know 15 inches of feather. Right. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to to see. But definitely, we're gonna post this podcast um, relatively quickly. And so getting some feedback on what people might want to see before we do the actual testing. I mean, definitely don't be afraid to throw down your your thoughts on this. Um, I mean, I think we've, well, I say we, you've got it pretty well covered. Um, the, uh, I think the other thing too is like uh, loss and momentum will be kind of interesting from, yeah. from, 
from zero, you know, coming out to the bow at 40, how much momentum you're actually uh, losing, especially with the heavier arrow to the lighter arrow um, in comparison. Yeah, I throw this out there too. Some I'm not a mathematician myself, but I know that there's going to be plenty of people that are a lot smarter than the people in this room that are out there listening that uh, I know that there's got to be a formula um, versus me trying to figure it out, yeah. you know, <laughs> to determine, okay, if my arrow's flying at 170 feet per second, um, then if I'm looking at an eight inch kill zone, how, you know, um, before and after that, or how long of a window yardage wise, um, at traveling at 160 feet per second with that eight inch trajectory, what kind of yardage dif- you know, difference am I going to have versus if it was flying at 150 feet per second? So if somebody wants to throw that formula out there, it'll save us doing some legwork on our end. We just did, uh, Sunday we shot a, a Highlands Ranch archery range and I was figuring out my my point on exactly and a yard and a half was ten inches so yeah my point on was thirty nine um, you know money in the elk and a yard and a half back I'm I'm barely catching the heart at a yeah. yard and a half and, yeah and I gotta think I would be closer uh, you know if I went to four two inch or whatever yeah um, I'm gonna be a hell of a lot closer in that yard and a half rather than that, you know, 10 inch drop or 12 inch drop or whatever it was with my point on as accurate as I can be anyway. That's what we could tell. And I was pretty close on all my arrows on height at at 39 and and the same thing at 41 and a half uh, or 40 and a half. So I was like, man, a yard and a half is a big deal with a stick yeah. not flying real quick. Yep. And I mean that's what always makes me laugh when I hear people say, "Oh yeah, I've got, you know, a 0 to 40 pin." It's just like, "Dude, you're so full of crap." Yeah. <laughs> Cuz even, you know, even if you're flying double the speed that you were right there, then that yeah. doesn't make up for that trajectory, you know. No. No. And I was breaking all this down for Amy because she was kind of going back and forth. She's using a single pin. Mm-hmm. And and she had asked um, Santino about hunting with one. And I'm like, look, your shit's got to be dialed with a single pin. You've got to be able to shoot, move and communicate quickly in your brain. Because if you got it set at 20 and it comes to 34, yep. you got to know exactly how high to aim. And she's only shooting maybe 240 or something feet per second. And I'm like, you know, right now I would strongly suggest not shooting a single pin or limiting your distance, maybe 20 to 30 right. and setting it at 25. Um, cause there's just so much going on and, and that, that arrow drop for that stuff is, is important. Um, it'd be interesting to see. The first year I used a single pin, I had just the exact scenario that you're laying out happened to me. I snuck up on a mule deer. Uh, I was on some rim rock and, and popped up right on top and this buck was bedded below me and, um, so I, I kind of ranged, you know, this area that I figured this deer was going to come out and everywhere was pretty much about 20 yard shot. So I slid my slider down to 20 yards, set my single pin there. And I just stood there and stood there and waited. And pretty soon I catch movement out to my left. Well, this buck had gotten up out of his bed, walked along the base of the rim rock and squirted out. And now I didn't have time to range him because now he's standing broadside on top of the rim rock, you know, down um, down the rim rock from me. And I figured, okay, it's 30 yards. So I drew back and I just held my 20-yard pin 
high. I ended up spine shooting them. Um, but had I've had a, you know, cause I was like, I had no reference to gauge where 30 yards was going to be. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, obviously I guessed that it was too, you know, guessed too high, held my 20 pin too high. But for the guys that are out there that are shooting sliders, man, for me, like a three pin, a three pin, um, slider, three pins fixed. And then your bottom pin is your floater. That worked awesome for me. That, that's what I told her if we started hunting or she did that maybe three pins would be best, even two, but you know, depending upon her effective distance, to, that way there's more time the farther out where right. she may have time to move it. And I'm a little bit weird. I shot a seven pin slider. I just got so used to seven that it was actually confusing for me when I had less because for years I shot seven but that's a lot of clutter for for most people but I I shot pins real well and I didn't have a lot of arrow drops so as far as holding over or under wasn't as as big of a deal and there's guys that are very effective with a single pin I'm just not it's not something I suggest to to anyone I think if you've decided to shoot a single pin you don't need my advice you you know what I mean if you decided and you're good at it you don't need to take any advice from me yeah I I think some of it too depends on what you're hunting because if you're you're you know hunting elk where you're calling them in and that you don't know that shot distance before that shot presents itself, then it lends itself much more to a multi-pin sight versus if you're hunting, say, mule deer and you're stalking them in their beds and more than likely you're going to have the time to dial it in and, and take that shot, you know, at a known distance. Yeah, no, for sure. Rank you dying over there? No. <laughs> <laughs> there was one more thing I was going um, to, just going back to the fletching length thing. I My setup that I shot last year, I was shooting out there at the range and I got it to where I was shooting broadheads at 40 yards, shooting four inch and seven eighths fletchings and um, and they were grouping well. And I was having, I felt like I it wasn't a critical setup as far as from a forgiveness standpoint. I ended up bumping up to two and a half inch fletching, just figuring, okay, if I get caught sometime in the rain and my feathers get slicked back and I'm not going to, my fletching isn't going to provide as much stabilization, um, I figured that four wet two and a half inch feathers are going to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a little bit closer to that inch and seven eighths from a stability standpoint. So I went a little bit more conservative there. Um, and part of it was because I was just so used to shooting longer feathers that from a psychological standpoint, you know, jumping back to where, and those inch and seven eighths are dinky, man. There's not a lot of surface area on them. See, but, I, I got some from Brent. I had him send me a bunch. Uh-huh. And, I just, man, it's, I can't do it. I tried and it's just not for me. And I'm not saying it's, it, you can't do it because tons of people do, but a big part of everything in life is mental. And it's hard for me to get that big ass feather off there. It just, I feel confident with it. Now I will say it, it, there's downsides. I mean, velocity one, two wind, you know, yep. wind will blow it out of the way, but, um, it also could be I have a shitty release and my it, I it, doubt it, that, it, it corrects the arrow flight. You're, so. you're not grouping like that if you have a, a crappy release. But I'm gonna one of the things I want to do is play around with the two fletch just from a fletching clearance standpoint. Yeah. You know, obviously the fewer feathers you have in your shaft and the then the more margin there is for um that arrow to get past your shelf there without contacting. Yeah, yeah, Matt Davis and uh, I think Joel are shooting. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people shooting Uh two flitch, but two guys I can think of. And a lot of it is, too, like when Frank hears me talk about it's what you're confident in. Yep. I'm confident with giant feathers, but I I 
if I if it's like this testing and, yep. and me screwing around, if it shows to shoot, you know, four three inch, I would go to four three. You know what I mean? Yep. I'll do whatever is going to benefit it. It's just right now I haven't it's seen it enough yet for where I want to change. But there's a lot of guys that have really good luck with like four smaller. Well, you shot four. Yep. Two and what was it? Uh, I I tested down to inch and seven eighths and was having good results and I could have hunted with that. In fact, I did have a couple of those in my quiver, um, but ultimately ended up shooting the two and a halfs, four two and a halfs. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, cool. Well, we should probably wrap this up so we can get up and talk to the Brainiac upstairs about that uh, that yeah. pack. But uh, yeah, so, so everybody, make sure and check out it's stalkerstickbows.com. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then buy South's DVD, especially out of boredom because it's something fun to do when the weather's bad. Well, he's got two of them. And then you got another one? Yeah, there's a, so there's this, the original one is Stalkers in the Backcountry. And then the sequel is Return to the Backcountry. And then there's the the third one is the Glory Hogs, um, you know, that the pig hunting video. Gotcha. And uh, have you seen that one? No, but I saw, I didn't know that was yours. I saw that on uh, Rocky Mountain. I'm, I'll go grab one today. Oh, shoot. I should have brought one down <laughs> for you. They're pretty good. Oh, dude. It's, you know, if from a, per, just from a, strictly speaking, just from a video production standpoint, the guy that filmed and edited that did a, just an, awesome job on it and you know again like full moon productions was he was well ahead of his time because that was done pushing 10 years ago yeah 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 somewhere close to 10 years ago in the the production on it is is awesome but the the it's it's not the you know hogs from a cordon feeder this is all spot and stock north northern california and uh some really cool footage um yeah a really fun video for sure if you ever uh, thought of throwing that stuff on like amazon prime because i was i was noticing the other day i was just scrolling through prime there's a ton of hunting stuff on oh, there no now. kidding yeah like, huh. a, like a ton like they have solo hunters on there now Renella stuff's on there but there's a bunch of like lesser known hunting videos on prime now all of yeah. a sudden huh. i'll be damned yeah no i hadn't i mean i've had people um request you know the video on demand where you can just pay and and uh download or whatever um and i may end up doing that it's just dude i got so many i got more ideas and more more things to do than i have time to get them all done when you're you know if I were to equate this to Kafaru, when you're the the material sourcer, the pack sewer, the marketer, <laughs> you know, the the guy that's doing the shipping and receiving and doing the, uh, you know, basically all the all the faces of the company, and and this is not to take away from my employee at all. He he busts his ass as well, but I uh, there's there's some big hats for the two of us to wear, and there's just a shortage of manpower when it comes right down to it. So yeah, um, but all of my stuff from here on out is just going straight to uh, to YouTube. So I, I do have a um, a new hunt up on my YouTube channel. Um, from Colorado from this year. It's called The High Country. If you go to the Stalker Stick Bows on YouTube and then uh, we'll be putting up additional content. And then I got another hunt from last year that isn't completed being edited, but it's that hunt I did in Nevada with Larry Jones. Um, that'll be going up on there. And then I've got a film in the Full Draw Film Tour, the uh, Five Foot Bull that one I smoked at Point Blank, um, that'll be coming through Colorado here at the end of July. And it's going, man, they've got so many showings this year. It's all over the country. So if you're, you know, get on their website, fulldrawfilmtour.com and check out to see where it's coming at a city near you and pick up some tickets. It's going to be a, a epic to see that thing on a big screen. 
Yeah, heck yeah, no, for I've seen it and it it looks look good on my big TV. So, well, cool. Well, man, I appreciate you uh, coming back on, and then uh, everybody kind of stay tuned either on um, South Page or No Limits or ours, or we'll definitely kind of announce when we're doing. I'm sure I'll do some Insta Google Tweet Face stories and stuff while we're doing the the testing, and then definitely check check out StalkerStickbows.com and and to get the video. That's no bullshit. Those videos are awesome. So I appreciate you coming on though, man. Sure thing.